Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. My guest is Daniel Handler, otherwise known as Lemony Snicket. His latest book is Poison for Breakfast. There are 13 volumes of a series of unfortunate events, four volumes, all the wrong questions. This is under Lemony Snicket's name and under Daniel Handler's name, we are pirates, all the dirty parts, and most recently, Bottle Grove. Daniel Handler, you talked to me before this one on the air that this book was actually written before the pandemic began. So what took it so long to get into print? Well, part of it was the pandemic, for sure. Yeah, it was written during a kind of a stolen summer. I thought I was going to spend this entire summer in Vancouver, Canada a couple of years ago when they were filming the Netflix adaptation of a series of unfortunate events. So that's what I thought I was going to be doing all summer, renting a little place and going to a set and staring at it for 12 hours a day. And as often happens with me in large entertainment conglomerates, I was then told that we don't need you. And so I suddenly had a summer free and like really free. I felt like I was 11 years old or something. And so I was in Massachusetts for most of the summer and Every day I would just go to the library and I had had the idea for this book kind of on the back burner, but I wasn't sure if it was a book or not. And usually I just like to kind of keep sounding and keep thinking and keep writing and maybe just tiny little bits until I figure out that it's really a book. But this time I thought, well, why not just do it? No one knows what you're doing. No one knows you're here. No one knows you're working on a book. No one's expecting a book. So why don't you just write it and then see if it is a book? And I wrote it. I put it aside a little bit like I do in a fireproof box. And then I took it out again and made it better. I mean, mostly it's boring logistics is the reason for delay in publication. And part of that is the pandemic trying to particularly, I think, at the beginning of the pandemic where we couldn't face how long it might be. I think of that time all the time. I remember I did a huge grocery shop as everybody did. And I thought, I bet this will hold me. You know, because it's like <laughs> two weeks worth of groceries or something. And I thought, maybe a ban, there won't be salads, but like, it'll be fine. I'll just stay in my house with all of this food. And of course, it didn't quite last for a year and a half, as it turned out. And publishing was kind of the same way. There was a little bit of like, let's just delay it for a bit. And then there was like, let's all freak out for a while. And then there was, okay, let's try to get our ducks back in order. Before we went on the air, I also asked you what your pandemic life was like. And you said... You're a writer. You're kind of on your own anyway. So what difference does it make? Did you write a book during the past year and a half? I wrote most of a book. Yeah. And then I also did some collaborations. I enjoy being in the company of musicians. I had a kind of a musical upbringing. So I had some collaborations with musicians that previous to the pandemic were going at a super snail's pace, at a kind of musician's pace, which is sometime when we're all in the same city Let's get together. We'll listen to some records. We'll like talk for a few hours. We'll stop and, you know, make a round of Manhattans. And then maybe we'll get a tiny little bit of work done. And then when the pandemic hit, I mean, musicians were among the people I knew who were really at a loss for what to do. 
And so those collaborations went from that, what I just sketched out to, I would like to meet every Wednesday and everybody has to bring new work to the table. And so we were, um, you know, on various platforms uh, figuring it out. It was kind of nice because so much socializing was missing. It was kind of nice to collaborate. But I did also, yeah, I also worked a little bit on a book by myself. I mean, I um, I like working and being forced to stay inside the house was, you know, in some ways a way to buckle down even further. I mean, I had a very privileged and lucky pandemic, which is not really surprising because those are also the hallmarks of the life that I lead when there isn't a pandemic. And I was always aware, no matter how much I was being driven crazy, that I was really hard pressed to think of someone who had a better situation than I did. I didn't have any job. I have one son who is of enough age that he can look at his school on a screen by himself and not need me standing over him. And we have the means to afford all kinds of, uh, you know, delicious and entertainment delectables to be delivered to our home by people who had it much rougher. So uh, I don't like to complain about the pandemic much. During the first 10 months of the pandemic, I wasn't sleeping because of Trump and fascism. Yeah. That was problematic, too. You know, when you're raised in the Jewish tradition, as I was, half the time you're not sleeping because of rising fascism. So I'm kind of used to that. Daniel Handler, let's talk a little bit about Poison for Breakfast. What I noticed in the book is that aside from the fact that it consists of Lemony Snicket kind of traveling from one place to another and talking about it, the main feature of the book seems to me coming up with words, defining the words, and trying to increase the vocabulary of whoever's reading the book. <laughs> well, I mean, vocabulary has always been a kind of part of the Snicket adventure. I mean, one was really kind of a matter of my ignorance about children's literature when I started. It was suggested to me that I write something for children. I was trying it, and I had written a very small amount after a little outline, and I hit the word rickety. And I thought to myself, wait, do children know what the word rickety means? And then I thought, well, some adults don't know what the word rickety means. How do we do this again? And then I thought, well, what if I just define it in a way that's interesting? And if you already know what it means, you'll think it's funny. And if you don't know what it means, you'll think it's funny. And you'll have learned what rickety means. And then I kind of went from there. And then also just because the universe of Snicket is so governed by literature, you know, libraries and obscure books and tiny little codes hidden in little pieces of literature is all about what the books are. And so Every time there's a word that seems worth dwelling on for a minute, Lemony Snicket tends to stop and dwell on it. In an afterword to the book, you say that many of the characters are actually real people, like the shoemaker. Yeah, I mean, all of it is real. I would say out of all of my books, it is the book that is most tied to what we call reality. I like to think of the Nabokov quote that says that reality is one of the few words in the English language that only becomes meaningful when you put it in quotes. So... Whatever we want to call this place that we're stuck in right now <laughs> has the most connections to the book. So the book is dedicated to the shoemaker who was a figure in my life when I was growing up. She died a few years ago. She was trapped in concentration camps, had quite a lengthy and horrific journey through concentration camps when she was younger, before I was born, obviously. And she had a very vivid and powerful imagination and was an inspiration in, uh, in all of those ways. The book, Poison for Breakfast, Daniel Handler, Lemony Snicket, Slash, starts off with an idea that I first saw in a movie called DOA. Mm, yeah. Was that kind of your inspiration? I do like DOA. 
There's like a 40s version and like an 80s version. And there's actually currently I've just seen the premise is being used in a movie that is not called DOA, but certainly the premise of like a doomed hero. And I, I have a predilection for noir. The Snicket series, All the Wrong Questions, is pretty much a sequence of four noir novels for children. But the real inspiration was actually when I was making breakfast for a child of my acquaintance and had decided, to, you know, that it was one of those things where the child said they didn't want anything for breakfast. And I said, well, you have to eat something. And so then I cooked an egg for the child and the child didn't want the egg. It's one of the most ridiculous conversations you can get into. And it happens all the time between adults and children where the adult does something for the child that the child is not asked for. And then the adult is angry that the child is not grateful. It's one of a million things that I swore I would never do when I became an adult. And of course, I do it daily. And so I said to the child in frustration, just eat this egg. It's not poison. And the child said, well, when I'm done eating the egg, I'll be closer to the moment that I die. So actually, it is poison, which I thought was kind of a brilliant response and did what the child was hoping, which made me eat the egg instead. And I think the child had strawberry yogurt. But I got interested in that idea and that murder mysteries, all my favorite murder mysteries, you know, actually circle the idea of death and mortality really seriously. The Long Goodbye, probably one of my favorite books of the world. It's hard to remember a thing about the plot of The Long Goodbye. I've read it like 12 times and I, and I can never really remember what happens. What I remember is that Philip Marlowe is brooding a lot. Well, about, it's Chandler. I mean. Yeah. <laughs> about loyalty and love and betrayal and, and class and all of the things that preoccupy him. And so... I wrote on a scrap of paper because the child had said this, you had poison for breakfast. So I wrote, you had poison for breakfast. And then I had that scrap of paper and it, it felt like a scrap of paper that someone would find. And then I began to think about Lemony Snicket kind of chasing down his breakfast and exploring these issues and losing himself in the digressions and ruminations that are in all of my favorite detective novels. So it starts as kind of a murder mystery and then it goes out and about. Patrick Warburton is the actor's name? Yes, Patrick yeah, Warburton. Okay. As I began reading it, and this was not something I intended, I began hearing his voice in my head that somehow <laughs> he had captured Lemony Snicket's voice to such a degree that it was now his voice in my head. Well, that's funny because he's doing the audio version of Poison for Breakfast. Of so course. <laughs> if you listen to the audio version, you'll in fact hear his voice. Yeah, he was such a marvelous presence in the... Netflix adaptation. I like to brag that it was my idea because I enjoyed him very much in a couple of movies. I mean, he's obviously had quite the career, but in my mind, he's always the star of this very obscure movie called The Woman Chaser, which is an adaptation of a Jim Thompson novel. And in many scenes, Patrick Warburton is staring at the camera and saying things to various people. It's not, he's not really narrating it, but he becomes a kind of narrator in the movie. And it's just a marvelous movie. No one's ever seen it before. And in fact, I found some little clips of it to play to Netflix people to say, look, here is a narrator. Wouldn't he be great? And one of the executives said, did you make this? Did you film him? <laughs> <laughs> the movie is not super high budget. Am I being pranked right now? Has this guy put, put Patrick Warburton in his garage and made him read lines? But yeah, he's done a marvelous job and he was very sweet about doing the audio version. I think it's okay to say but I just got an email from him today, in fact, because he's officiating a wedding. And he was like, you told me once that you've officiated weddings. I want you to mail me <laughs> what, what you use when you were officiating weddings. So he stepped pretty seriously into the snicket shoes, I would say. So what was the name of that Jim Thompson movie? It's called The Woman Chaser. 
Yeah, it's really marvelous. My wife and I saw the movie in New York, and we just loved it. And then years later, when we moved back to San Francisco, we were walking by the Roxy Theater, and there it was. And this was before we had children, so we had like the luxury of saying, let's just go in right now and see this movie. And so we saw it, and the lights lowered, and they said, this is the first time this movie has been shown since it was shown at such and such a date in New York. We had been at like most of the very, very few public screenings. And Patrick Warburton was there. The director of the film was there. I think a couple other people who, who talked about the film that day. And so that was another reason I think he stuck in his head is I felt like I was the singular audience for this wonderful performance by Patrick Warburton. I want to go back a little bit into your career. From my perspective... The way you came into my life was over at a bookstore in Berkeley called Dark Carnival when suddenly the people there were raving about this one particular book about the Baudelaire kids, the bad beginning, that this was somehow going to be the thing. And that's when I first became aware of it. And then another volume and another volume, and soon there was... A classic. The question is, going back, where did you begin? What made you a writer and what got you started? I understand that there was a book that you'd written, a very dark book for kids that just couldn't get published. Well, my first novel was The Basic Eight, and it took a long time for that book to get published. It is about a high school inspired by my own high school, Lowell High School here in San Francisco. It's about a murder you know, nearly all of the characters are high school students. And at the time, that was kind of unthinkable for fiction. It seems so bizarre now, because not only is it thinkable, but young adult fiction has since sprung up as a whole genre, and for many years, a dominant genre in literature, what people were reading. But at the time, people said, like, I guess there are a couple of high school novels some years ago, but this is not something that people write about. And it was finally published uh, by St. Martin's Press, good God bless them. But then in that time, my agent, almost in desperation, was sending it to various editors of books for young people. And at the time, as I said, they said, there's no way we can publish this novel about high school students who are murdering each other and taking drugs and having sex. Of course, again, that is now required for young adult fiction. But at the time, that was unthinkable. What what year was that? Uh, This was the mid to late 90s. It was many years. It seemed like it was about 30 years, but it was just a handful of years. And one editor said, you write very well about young people. I can't publish this book, but would you think about writing something for young people? And I had been working on a novel that was a kind of mock gothic novel because I was very interested in gothic literature and I really liked the tropes of it and I was interested in kind of transforming it. But the thing is, in gothic fiction it's kind of centered on a disempowered woman, right? Some woman is married to some guy and it's out in the middle of nowhere and everything freaky is going on and she has nowhere to turn. Sure, Rebecca, Wuthering Heights, you know, Castle of Ludolfo, it goes on and on. And I switched the genders. I I was trying to have a hapless young man, probably because I was a hapless young man, involved in these mysterious circumstances. But I was really having trouble with it because I was trying to bring it into the modern era. And in the modern era, you would think, well, why don't you just leave? You know, all right, call an Uber. The marriage didn't work out. Get out of there. And I couldn't think how to trap them in that way. And as soon as this editor said, maybe you want to write something for children, I began to think, well, if my hero was a child or maybe several children so they could talk to each other and there could be some dialogue, then of course they couldn't go anywhere because they're children. And that became poignant and interesting to me. 
And so that is how I started writing for children. It's just from kind of an offhand suggestion by someone. Where did Lemony Snicket come in and the Baudelaire kids and Count Olaf? Well, the Baudelaire's were the heroes. It made sense to call them Baudelaire to me because the Flowers of Evil, Baudelaire's kind of big masterwork of poetry, was something that I had discovered at a very young age. I checked it out of the West Portal Library. I think that I must have thought it was a horror novel. I certainly didn't think it was a collection of... I don't think it was a bilingual edition of poetry. I don't think that's why I bought it. And so I was very taken with it. I found it super interesting. And so there were the Baudelaire orphans. I just thought of as menacing villains as I could. And so there was there's quite the parade of villains in this series of unfortunate events. But then the narrator was kind of becoming a character of his own. And because the world was so mysterious and bookish, I liked the idea that the books could be published under the name of the narrator rather than the author. And it's funny because everyone always talks about it like it's a pseudonym and it sounds precious to say so, but I never really thought of it as a pseudonym. I thought of it as the actual name, the real name of a narrator. And so for years and years during a series of unfortunate events, and after that I would go and visit countless schools and libraries and talk to people about this book. And I would always say, I'm really sorry, Lemony Snake, I can't be here. And from in my mind, I wasn't really quite lying because he really couldn't be there. But it was great to start with the assumption of dishonesty and treachery when talking with young people. I felt that went really well. That first book, suddenly, and again, as you say, this is now part of the system, but suddenly these books for children were dark. When you presented the book to the publisher, to a publisher, when your agent did, did anybody say, uh, this is a little too dark? No one really did because it was at this kind of brief moment in children's publishing where they were expanding a little bit and they gave me a very tiny amount of money for the first four volumes of a series of unfortunate events. And I think their thing was, well, good luck to you. I remember that I said to my agent, I can't believe they said they're going to publish four volumes. And she said, they're not going to publish all four volumes of this, my friend. Go with God and take the money and good luck. And so I did all of those things. And there wasn't much concern about it being too dark. I think that they were willing to throw kind of tiny experiments up against the wall there and see what stuck. It's a much more conservative time in children's publishing now. I've been doing this for long enough that I've watched kind of the rise and fall of that kind of experimentation and permissiveness and that kind of enthusiasm about unusual literature. So I shudder to think what would happen if we could somehow rejigger it so the books were being submitted now. But at the time, there really wasn't any pushback. You send the book in. It gets published. At what point did you realize that you were actually going to have to fulfill the contract because these books sold. And at what point did you realize that this was going to make you as a writer? I mean, it took a long time. It was really several years before I think we all figured out that this was really going to be something that was going to have a long lasting effect in one way or another, certainly on my career and on, I hope, some readers. But I mean, the first event I did for Lemony Snicket was in Lansing, Michigan. They flew me out to Lansing, Michigan, and I was in this huge chain bookstore where they'd set up what seemed like 100,000 folding chairs. It's always a pain to do events there because you can have 500 people show up and it still looks, you know, kind of empty. And this had two people show up and they were sitting way in the back. In fact, they were sitting so far back that I thought, have they just sat down? (laughs) But of course, you do the gig. So I did the gig. 
And afterwards, they came up to me and they said, we are from the other large chain bookstore down the road. And we hate your books. And we just had to see what kind of person would be doing this. And I thought, that's about right. This is about the right response that I predicted from mock gothic novels about terrible things happening to children. They published the first two volumes simultaneously. And I thought, this is this is where I thought I would be. And then there were quite a few stops like that. And every so often there would be some one or two people who were very excited, young people who were excited about the books. And that was pretty fascinating to me. That gave me kind of joy and peace, but also some anxiety because I was always in a town that wasn't my own. And someone had flown me there and put me up in a hotel. And then I would call and say, oh, three people came, but one of them was really into it. And I think <laughs> I thought, well, that was not quite how the investment would work out. Yeah. And I, I mean, I always said the books kind of failed to fail. I kept thinking, oh, well, they let me have a tour and some people came. That was about it. We sold a couple of foreign rights. So I said, oh, well, that's really unusual. Now they're going to be published over here and who knows what will happen. And yeah, and then it just kept going. And I kept thinking for a while, the books were published more than once a year, and then they were published once a year. And I kept thinking, this has got to be the last tour. I must be at the, you know, after the tip of the bell curve, I might be in the downward slope now. And it really didn't happen like that. And it was shocking and bewildering. Daniel Handler, at what point did you realize that you were going to have to finish all of these books <laughs> and you were going to have to come up with a conclusion? Well, I had a conclusion in my head, which is the conclusion of the series. And so I wasn't worried about concluding it, but I was a little worried about getting there. And there were definitely a few years where I would do enormous tours. I would sometimes go abroad and do that too. And then the clock would be ticking to write the new volume. And that was a pretty exhausting treadmill and an aspect of writing that I don't miss. It was a loopy blessing for it to be going on. I don't really know another way to describe it. It was so unthinkable that this was happening, and it was such a powerful delight and a wonder. And then along came, I guess, 2003 with the movie with Jim Carrey yeah. and Meryl Streep. And I guess by that point, the books were completed? No. They were not? No, the series was nearing its end. Yeah, there was a dizzying time where I was working on new volumes of the series and the script for the movie, which was based on previous volumes of the series at the same time, and that really felt pretty bonkers. That was another thing that right at the beginning of the series, Nickelodeon had expressed an interest in optioning the books, and it was one of those things where I thought, well, good for them, but no one's ever going to make this, and then they didn't for a while, and then as they got more interested, it stopped being just Nickelodeon's kind of small sandbox and kind of be the larger sandbox of various corporate juggernauts who were getting in on it. I mean, that was another bewildering time. I feel you keep asking different questions about my answer. It's always the same, which was like, yes, that is confusing. The books have one story each. The TV show has two and the movie has, I think, two or three. I don't even remember. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it depends what you call a story. Arguably, the movie has no story. That's what some people would say. <laughs> um, but I mean, the, the story of a series of unfortunate events is the story of the Baudelaire's going through this adventure and the story of Lemony Snicket being haunted by it. In Poison for Breakfast, kind of Lemony Snicket being haunted is the foreground of the story. And there's little things about what's going on in the background. But I thought it would be interesting for this book to kind of foreground all of the digression and philosophizing and contemplation 
that is in the background and all of the other Snicket books. Well, in those books, at the beginning, as you say, he was just a narrator. But at a certain point, he becomes part of the story. He becomes not merely the narrator and author, but a character so that when you're doing a book like Poison for Breakfast, he's somebody. As you follow both A Series of Unfortunate Events and All the Wrong Questions, you kind of learn that there is a much larger story at play. And for me, it reminds me of as you grow older, you probably learn stories about your family or you learn stories about the location where you live. Stories that you hear when you're young may not be quite accurate or quite as detailed as the story that you're in. And then there is kind of the worry about what to do with the with the weight of history and the weight of your past. And that's what the Baudelaire's face. The more they dig into what got them into trouble, the deeper that trouble becomes. And so at what point do you say, I'm just going to leave my life and step away from this, these things that are tying me down? And Lemony Snicket was always a part of that. Daniel Handler, do you ever find when you're writing books as Daniel Handler that Lemony wants to interfere? Or is, <laughs> is that just simply some kind of weird fantasy on my part? <laughs> Um, I don't really know what that would look like. Certainly, all of my books have, have plenty of unreliable narrators and philosophical digressions and and what have it. That's kind of my idea of a good time. Those All my favorite books, you feel the personality of the author there with you, no matter what that personality is. And of course, there's an endless array of it. But I think from the time when I was very young and having books read to me, that deep intimacy, that kind of imaginary space in which someone is telling you the story, not just a story is happening, but that someone's telling it to you. I think that's very powerful. Daniel Handler, going way back then, at what point did you think, you know, music, writing, what am I going to do? And then you began writing. I mean, I have a great appreciation for music and a fondness for it. And I think a fine ear for music, but I most certainly an amateur. Uh, so it's kind of like I can do some mathematics, too, but I'm not good at mathematics or anything. I'm only good at mathematics for an author graded on that very generous curve. I'm OK. And it's kind of the same with music is that I know more about music than people might think because I'm not a musician. The life of a musician was something I don't think I could have achieved. And I mean, I still find it very difficult. But as a writer, at what point did you say, I'm going to try writing? I mean, I always wanted to be in the company of literature. I don't remember a time when I didn't want to be a writer. I mean, it, it was more that I that over time I learned what a writer was, and it turned out also that I liked that. I think when you're young, you tend to have an image of a writer. Like, who doesn't want to be a writer? That sounds glamorous, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and then, and I remember in college, I studied with this wonderful writer. We lost her a few years ago, but she was a real mentor to me named Kit Reed, and she was an utterly unpretentious and very skilled writer. And her writing classes were that you gave her 10 pages of fiction every week and you met in her kitchen to talk them over. There was no workshopping each other. We weren't giving each other pointers as 20-year-olds as to what might be good at writing. It was an individual conference with her and she tailored what you read and what you studied and how you worked with how you were doing. I remember towards the end of college, I said to her, I just need you to tell me if I'm good enough that I can try to do this. And she said, what you really have to figure out is if you really like it. She said, you need to get a job where you can have as many free hours as possible 
And then you need to spend those three hours working. And you're going to see if you really want to be a writer. And I was so infuriated with her. I just thought, why don't you just tell me? (laughs) And of course, she was right. Because if you don't like sitting around all day long, you're not going to have fun being a writer. I think it's quite strange, actually, that there continues to be, even in this era where so much literature is neglected, tends to be this very fictional aura of drama and glamour about being a writer. And I certainly don't need to tell you, but many people still need to learn that, like, this is about as glamorous as it gets right here. (laughs) If you sit and someone's interested in your work and they ask you questions, you're already in the top 1% of people who write. This is as good as it gets. And so if you don't like making sentences all day long, because that's what you have to do mostly, then, like, you shouldn't be in the business. A couple of years ago. Oh, God, everything is a couple of years ago now. (laughs) Right. We Uh, saw nothing happened in two years. (laughs) I was talking to George Saunders after he'd suddenly become a big name. And I said, you know, what's it like suddenly to have this happen? He said, four or five weeks, I'm a big name. Then I go back home and that's gone. It's out the window. I'm just writing and teaching. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad that you mentioned him because, first of all, he's a wonderful writer, of course. But also, one of the things that I think is really wonderful about him is that he has always been very upfront and honest with his students and with other people who listen to him about the life of a writer. I never studied with him, but I know many people who are in his class. He says he opens his class with how much money he was given for his first book, and he talks about how long it took him to write it and how that is not a living. (laughs) And I think that's a very important thing to emphasize. And, um, I love how experimental and fiercely intelligent and yet utterly unpretentious he is. You know, in talking about making a living, a number of writers I know, they Don't. write <laughs> they write books and they get peanuts for it. Yeah. The books come and go. And they make their living writing screenplays that wind up never getting produced. Has that happened with you? I mean, I have written some scripts that have not been produced before. I would not say that that is something that I've made a living at. I don't have a knack for pitching. I'm not very good at pitching. Every so often a magazine will say, we would love to do something of yours. What do you want to do? And I'm, I always think, oh, I'm not good at Why don't you tell me what to do and then I'll go do it. So I'm not good at that part. And that if you want, I think if you want to be paid to write scripts, whether or not they're made into movies, you have to be really good at that part. It has to sound exciting. And every so often I will have an idea for a movie that's independent of any book that I'm working on, and I will write it. It's happened very, I'm trying to think, three times maybe, and then I will kind of show it to people, and then it's not made generally. But yeah, some writers make money that way. I mean, plenty of them teach. I think the most sensible writers are ones who do something else entirely. There's a poet I really love named T.J. Jarrett, and she works in finance. (laughs) She's a real job. She goes home. Every so often she spends a few hours in contemplation. She writes beautiful, fierce poetry, but she manages to float above a lot of the petty drama and panic that happens in the writing world, I think, because she is not involved in that part. What were you doing before the writing actually became your career? Various miserable office jobs. Yeah. Nothing very exciting. I had a job writing for radio a little bit, which fed into my novel, We Are Pirates. I did chase the dream. I mean, I I would hear of people who are making their money in Hollywood, and sometimes it would just be like ridiculous money. I remember that I'd heard that someone I knew who went to the same school I did, but he was a few years ahead of me. 
I heard this rumor that he had been paid $100,000 a week to rewrite a movie, you know, and then he quit after like six weeks. I was like, oh my God, I got to get that gig. And so I had a movie agent at the time and I would say like, I'm going to go down to LA and can you have me meet with these companies? And he would say, they do not want you. You have no experience in this realm. And we're trying desperately to sell your dark high school comedy. And I would say, please, just set me up a meeting with anybody. I'll do anything. And so he'd say, fine. And he would set me up with these meetings. I would go down to L.A., I'd drive down. I would crash with a friend. And then I would spend all day meeting with these people who were not going to hire me in this world or the next. And I remember I would talk to them about obscure novels. You know, I would say, oh, I read this Japanese novel from the 1930s. And if we updated it, it would be amazing. You know, it was just like no one wants to hear that from some kid. And I would go back i just remember i felt so broke i grew up in comfortable circumstances and so there was not a danger of me living on the streets but i was just not making any money of my own and that i would come back from these exhausting days in hollywood and i would be crashing with some friend and so i would feel obliged you know to take the friend to dinner or to you know in other words spend money (laughs) to indicate my gratitude and I had no money, and I and I it was I was always exhausted and demoralized. And I just remember I would come back all the time, and I would say like, "Great, I'll take you out to tacos." And I would think to myself, "You can't afford to take anybody out to tacos. What's wrong with you?" <laughs> On the other hand, you know, there's probably some executives 15, 17 years later going, "You know, we could have hired Daniel Handler, and we told him to get lost." <laughs> I think they tell so many people to get lost. I would be surprised <laughs> if any of them remembered me whatsoever. But you also have done plays. I mean, The Composer is Dead. I did The Composer is Dead, which was an adaptation. Well, I mean, that's been through many adaptations. It started life as a piece for orchestra and narrator in collaboration with a composer, kind of like Peter and the Wolf. It was commissioned by the San Francisco Symphony. It was performed there. It was then performed all over the place, sometimes with me as the narrator and sometimes not. That was lots of fun. Uh, It was turned into a picture book with illustrations by Carson Ellis and a recording by the symphony, the San Francisco Symphony. And then, yeah, then the Berkeley rep and working with the uh, puppet uh, troupe Phantom Limb turned it into this kind of theatrical entertainment, which was really fun to try. And then I wrote a more straightforward play that Tony Ciccone directed also over at Berkeley Rep called Imaginary Comforts. And I'm working on a couple of stage things now with the musicians, as I mentioned. Daniel Handler. You know, when I went to Wikipedia, and we discussed this, that occasionally something comes up and suddenly you're hit by Twitter or whatever. As a person who has developed a name, how do you deal with the fact that you might have said something that just went right by you? I've done this with friends and suddenly they're furious at me and I don't know why. And how do you deal with it? Because suddenly you're there are articles about things like that. That's just the cultural moment we're in, I think, if you're visible. I don't know someone who's visible in the culture who hasn't had that happen. And I think it's really hard because you don't want to say, oh, it's just because the internet is angry and I've never said anything that I regret and I've never hurt anybody's feelings. That's all just internet fiction. But neither can you say, this is always a completely sincere response that's going (laughs) on. And so it's a weird moment. But I do remember that years ago, it started happening to people that I knew. You know, I would kind of wake up and on my screen would be, this person is terrible. And I would say, I know this person. They are not terrible. And I would call them and I would say, I'm really sorry this is happening to you. This is really tough. And about the eighth time, and I remember literally I was on the phone with someone saying, it's totally fine. I like, you know, people say things that they regret. 
And also, like, this is way bigger deal than anyone, you know, and it will pass and everything will be fine. And as I said that, and I realized how many times I'd said that, I realized it was going to happen to me. And it was a moment where I thought, oh, I'm talking to myself right now. (laughs) And then it did. And it came from a completely unexpected direction the first time it has happened. And then it's happened, like, kind of a couple more times since then. I mean, I think the kind of big difference is that a few years ago... That was not really how we understood the culture was moving. A few years ago, I think we would read about people and maybe people would read about me and think, oh, that was really bad what that person did or like this is something. And now people understand that this is something that happens in the culture that is completely independent of what might actually have happened. And that I think people, I certainly understand having it happen to me and having happened to so many people that I know that now when I see some eight second clip or I see some quote about something that I know that I don't know what that is. <laughs> I know that I have no understanding of what the circumstances are. And that also that I'm not in the business of kind of spending a lot of time thinking about people that I don't know and what quality of person they are. I stand for truth and justice and bringing freedom and equality and equity to the world. I try to do that in my work. I try to do that with my money. And, you know, I say wrong things all the time. And there's only kind of so much you can say about it. I'm like a person in that way, I think. (laughs) You know, I keep thinking back to November 2020 when Gavin Newsom decided to go to the French Laundry. I'm thinking if I got a chance to go to the French Laundry under those circumstances, I might have. We all make mistakes. Yeah. I think the part of it that feels most difficult for me is this kind of like, I will never forgive this person for this that I see so much in the culture among people who are not friends. Like when a friend of mine is upset with me, I want to talk it through. I want to make right for when I've done wrong. And so when that's happened, I mean, the first time it happened was for me was at the National Book Awards with Jacqueline Woodson. And she's a good friend of mine. I don't want to look like I insulted her. And also, I don't want her to feel bad. And so I want to talk with her and work it out. But then, you know, I'm just a guy who lives in Toledo, Ohio. But like, I am mad at Daniel Handler about this. I don't really know. I think like, okay, are we not friends anymore? Because just to (laughs) review, we weren't friends then. And it really reminds me of, of a specific time in high school, actually, where I was sitting with some friends and one of them said, I will never forgive the clash the British punk band, I'll never forgive The Clash for their album, Combat Rock. And one of my other friends said, I heard they're really upset about that, that this American teenager (laughs) is not going to forgive them. And that's always what I think of when I see, like, I won't forgive Celebrity X. I think like, oh, I heard she's super broken up about that. (laughs) She can't get over it. That someone she's never met before is mad at them. It's a strange moment. You see, for instance, something like hosting an awards show has become a fraught issue because they look for someone who's never ticked anybody off. And guess what? That hasn't happened. And that also, the way in which you can become visible is often so quick and so fluid. And so I also just see a lot of, you know, young people who they do something on screen that many people see. And so they become famous in this moment. And then someone looks up what they were doing two years ago when they were also on a screen, but only their friends were paying attention and they were doing something else. And, you know, I consider myself lucky to be like part of 
one of the last generations of whose entire youth and childhood and adolescence and early adulthood were not filmed because we all say stupid things all the time, particularly when we're young and trying on things for that. So I'm always happy to engage in conversations about kind of behavior and change and solidarity to work together and to put mistakes in one place and to move towards the future. And I try to do that with the money that I spend and donate. And I try to do that in organizations that I work with. But I get kind of tired of the seven years ago, I was mad at you for this thing. And then another person told me about another thing. And and I just think like, (laughs) can you get out of my way? I'm trying to get to the bar, sir. But there is one other element, which is that a writer takes everything he or she has and puts them somewhere in their work, which means whatever Daniel Handler went through, at some point, we could see it in a Daniel Handler work, or perhaps not. Maybe it'll be just a book written by Count Olaf. I mean, maybe. I just think the beautiful thing about literature, one of the really beautiful things at its heart, is the contradiction between words having no meaning and words meaning so much, you know, and that there's countless numbers of words that have been uttered and written down all over the planet. We can't take all of them seriously. We can't comprehend them all. And most of them fly right by us. And we say things, not even, don't even think about things that might be offensive, just things that are contradictory. You know, something you said five years ago about something that you loved that you don't love anymore. And that that's how language moves. And yet also literature can stay with us forever and can hypnotize us when we're reading it and carry forward in our life. And I think that's just the beautiful thing because to me it counts as existence where countless people have existed on the planet. We all vanish. Even eventually our influence will vanish. And yet people stay with us and our most dearest experiences are connecting with people like that. And I try to move in that world. Daniel Handler, now you mentioned that you're beginning to work on other projects. Do you plan to come back to Lemony? Yeah, I never think we'll have seen the last of Lemony Snicket. But I mean, Poison for Breakfast is all about thinking about mortality. And so if I'm eaten by alligators tomorrow, then no, there won't be another one. (laughs) (laughs) You've been listening to an interview with Daniel Handler, whose latest book is Poison for Breakfast. And of course, a series of unfortunate events is still available on Netflix if you want to watch it, or you can actually read the 13 <laughs> books. Quick question. Beside all the wrong questions and series of unfortunate events and Poison for Breakfast, is there any other Lemony Snicket? Yeah, there are. There are a few kind of satellite books to both of those series, and then there's some picture books for young kids. There's a book called The Dark, which was with John Clausen illustrated. There's a book called 13 Words, which Myra Kalman illustrated. There's a book called Goldfish Ghost, which is illustrated by Lisa Brown, to whom I happen to be married. It's a weird coincidence. Yeah, so there's there's all kinds of Lemony Snicket books, some more available than others. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>